to the point. Here's Derek Morris. Morris. Block. Pekka. Outlet pass for Rick Nash. Nash now tries to split the defense and walk in. Nice move. Another nice move. Oh. He scores. Oh. What a goal. Oh. It doesn't get any better than this. Rick Nash. <laughs> What is up? Welcome to Season 2, Episode 28 of the Sportscasters. It is July 24th, 2012, and I am the host of the show, Steve Bennett, along with my co-host. And, what, two years married now, right, bud? Two years today, that's right. Congratulations to you and your wife on uh, two years of marriage. I didn't think it lasted this long, to be <laughs> honest. So far, so good. So, uh, congratulations on that. Um, we are... Well, we're getting closer and closer to football season for sure. Camp started today, right? Yeah, we're going to talk more about the Olympics, and we got that coming up. Major League Baseball trade deadline is essentially one week from today. Um, we got a whole bunch to do today. Uh, we got Damon Hack, who uh, Damon made a big move in his career. He's leaving SI, don't know if you heard about this, to go to the TV side over at SI.com. Uh, so we're going to talk to, or excuse me, at Golf Channel, TV side at Golf Channel. So we're going to talk to Damon about that and about the British Open. Also going to talk to uh, Sarah Kwok, who uh, we were lucky enough to squeeze in a real quick interview with her before she headed off to London, to yeah. London to the Olympics. We're going to talk some hockey, some Olympics, and also talk about a new Sports Illustrated Real Sports channel. And we're going to do what we normally do with Dave Damashek, and that's just kind of BS with him. That's right. So we got a great show today with all that stuff. Also, book club update. And five on fantasy and pick four at the end, of course. A couple of things I want to mention before we get started. Uh, we had a really interesting show last week in the sense that when we started recording it, we had some kind of loose ends in terms of what the guest list was going to be like. We weren't really sure what direction we were going to go in. We knew we were going to start with John Wertheim and talk some Penn State stuff. And kind of last week, we interestingly got into a uh, something we hadn't in the past where the show kind of seemed to evolve into a mostly Penn State show. And then we kind of had this awkwardly placed baseball interview <laughs> with Ben Nicholson Smith, which I apologize to him because that wasn't the intention going in. Right. Just kind of happened that we did some baseball sandwiched around some Penn State stuff when we had Zach, uh, formerly of AccuScore, right, and just right. Sooner Zach on. And he talked so passionately about that kind of a thing. And we were glad to do that. But an interesting thing that came of it was as we were recording that day, there was a couple of blogs from friend of ours, one ShermanReport.com and the other Jeff Perlman's blog. We're kind of talking about the impact that Scandal was going to have on the Joe Poznanski book. And I sent an email to Sherman and said we had actually kind of addressed the topic with John Wertheim. And he ended up uh, putting a really great post on ShermanReport.com. Uh, about Wertheim's comments on the show with some of his comments transcribed, and he linked to it. I wanted to thank him very much for that. We talked a lot last week, and he's going to join us again sometime this summer uh, to talk some sports media. He says he wants to catch up to Richard Deitch in appearances. <laughs> um, and then we ended up getting linked on Fang's Bites. Um, Fang had has been on with us, and actually they had me on their uh, sports media podcast, which I appreciate it. So I wanted to mention those two blogs, Fangs Bites 
and Sherman Report and thank them for linking the sportscasters last week. Uh, that was really cool. But as I said, we have a ton to do today. Hack, Damashek, Quack. Um, what else? We got Book Club Update, Five on Fantasy, Pick Four, and we'll get it started with three things. Let's play a game. All right. Count of three. One. All righty. I'll take it off. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. (laughs) This is the funnest night ever! (laughs) Did we just become best friends? Yep! Now let's move on to other business. Later. Very end. Alright, I'll get us started today on three things. Um, Don's going to talk a little bit about probably the biggest baseball trade of the week later in three things, but kind of an interesting thing as we get closer to the baseball trade deadline. Trade deadline is the 31st, but in the past couple years, it seems like the bigger deals have happened ahead of the deadline. And the Braves thought that they had scored Ryan Dempster, who is among the league leaders in ERA. He's having a great season with the Cubs, who are one of the teams who are definitely sellers this year, especially of veterans as Theo Epstein tries to rebuild that team. Uh, but as of recording of this podcast, Cubs and the Braves still don't have an official deal, and it seems like Dempster is the one who is blocking it. Dempster has ten uh, five rights, which means he can veto any trade because he's played at the major league level for at least ten seasons and with the same team for the last five seasons. Oh. So that's why they call it ten five rights. Uh, Ken Rosenthal from FoxSports.com is reporting that. He's hoping to be traded to the Dodgers, and he's kind of holding out to see if the Dodgers and the Cubs can approve a trade. So kind of a bummer for Braves fans. The Braves, of course, of course lost uh, Beachy a few weeks ago to Tommy John surgery. Um, Jurgens was brought back up from AAA to try to fill that spot, and that hasn't worked. And the Braves came really close to cutting into the Nationals' Uh, lead in the division last weekend for the Nationals took a run in the second half of the series and basically ended up in the exact same spot as they started. It was 2-2. But it'll be interesting to see how this plays out in terms of the 10-5 rights for Dempster and if the Braves can pull this trade off. But it'll be interesting as we go through this week to see uh, how the Major League Baseball trade deadline plays out. So I just wanted to get us started with that. All right, my first thing this week, um, we've already said basically enough probably about the Penn State scandal, and if you want to listen to really all our opinions about it and more, check out our, our podcast from last week. But the NCAA did hand down some penalties, including a four-year postseason ban and a $60 million fine. Uh, the postseason ban being the big thing here, the $60 million fine, most people have kind of scoffed at and said that that's nothing for them. Total money grab by the NCAA, too, it seems like. Right. Uh, so, good, I guess. Uh, players are free to move Which now, is nice. I was which glad is good to for them, them right. Yep. And teams kind of look like vultures now because they really have, what, two weeks to get ready, I think, before they're... I heard Bobby Bowden on Rome today say, yes, I would do it, but I don't like it. That he would go after their players? He would, You'd but he doesn't to. like it. It's one of them things where if you don't do it, you're the only team that doesn't, and then you're behind. But... Yeah, it's a bummer for the players. It's a bummer for the students. Uh, I heard like I said, no, no good is going to come of. I heard an interesting opinion from someone kind of saying that he, he thought Penn State would have been better off with a one-year death penalty as opposed to this kind of long, slower burn in terms of like losing scholarships. 
I think twenty a year for the for four years, plus eighty million bucks, and the four years without the Bulls. It'll be interesting to see where Penn State's at at the end of this four years. Yeah, at, I do a lot of my research for these stories on Reddit.com, which is like a compilation site, and someone posted a picture of. I'm not sure what the source is, but it's a quote from Joe Paterno. It says, It's unbelievable to think that that kind of corruption came right from the top of the power structure. The NCAA did what it had to in canceling SMU's 1988 football season. So that was him talking about a different scandal, and they avoided the death penalty, which some people probably disagree with. But, like you said, maybe it was harsher to kind of let them dangle there for four years instead of just... Like a clean, like tearing off a Band-Aid for right. one year. Kind of two other small Penn State things. One, they did determine to take the Paterno statue down. They did that kind of sneakily on they're, Sunday they're morning. They're not going to destroy it, though, which is odd. I don't know what they're going to save it for. You still have the Paterno apologists out there. And... Which is why they kind of, at 8.30 in the morning on a Sunday, just, just kind of showed up with a crew yeah, and took it out. And then the second thing is I kind of want to update the Piznanski book thing. Oh, There was an article in the New York Times about how the publisher is standing behind the book, but they're scaling back on the press tour. Okay. And the book tour in terms of signings are going to be way more limited as well. I don't know where that leaves us. I emailed (laughs) the contact at the publisher. It seemed like in the article what they said is they wanted to protect Piznanski from people who just wanted to bring him on to, beat him to up. attack him and beat him up. And I made sure the publisher knew that that was not our intentions at all. We have a lot of respect for Mr. Poznanski. We've said time and time again that him being on the sixth episode of this podcast uh, really opened us up to getting some of the bigger guests that have been on since then. And I haven't heard back yet, but I basically just stated we'd still love to talk to him. I'm sure we'll still get a book. I don't right. have any doubt in that. But hopefully he's still willing to do the show. I don't know. I don't know how far they want to scale it back. I don't know if maybe a show like this is exactly what they'll be looking for, and maybe avoiding things like the Dan Patrick show. I don't right. know. I right. don't. I don't know. But I'll just keep everyone updated. And as of now, I checked in with the publisher. I let her know what our intentions are. Doesn't mean I just want to throw out softball questions. But I also I have no intention to attack the guy and say you should have never written this book or election right, him in right. any way. We're more curious about the process of it right. and kind of like where he was in the beginning of the fall and how things changed for him and the scandal. And we, We're more interested in kind of the human side of it. We don't want to tear him down at all. He he didn't do anything wrong. He's, he's another stuck kind in a of bad collateral yeah. victim here. And, you know, as it said in a lot of those articles, maybe the biggest mistake was just trying to rush this book out, you know. If right. it would have stayed as, say, a November of 2014 release or whatever the original date was. But that's a publisher mistake. And that's a publisher mistake, not a Piznanski mistake. And I hope that because of that, the publisher doesn't punish little guys like us. Right. You know, because we've been very, very patiently awaiting the chance to talk to Mr. Piznanski about these things. But, sure. Uh, we'll see how it goes. All right. That's me then, right? It is. All right. Number two, uh, the Olympics start this week. And I ask you this a lot, Don. Well, actually... Events start as soon as tomorrow or Wednesday. I saw that. I, but the opening ceremonies. The opening Friday. ceremonies are Friday evening. Um, you're going to be able to see all kinds of stuff on their evening, right? Or is it their morning? 
What time is it here? Well, the opening ceremonies will be broadcast in the evening here, and they're the one thing that isn't going to be available like ahead of time. The opening and closing ceremonies are only going to be available in prime time on NBC. Okay. There will are they be taped then? They will be taped, okay. yes. There will be other just about every other event will be on Bravo or at like eight, seven, eight, nine AM. Right. Um, they're five hours ahead of Eastern Standard Time. Okay. So a five o'clock event will be ten o'clock there. Right. So a lot of the stuff will be probably from the morning to the mid afternoon live and then repeated and taped away at night on NBC. But on the other networks of NBC Live, I always ask you this. But where is the Olympics on your radar? Will Will this be bringing you to TV at all? Are you interested yes. in this? Absolutely, it always registers. It's what two weeks long. Yeah, it's I'll about probably two weeks. watch a little bit every single day. Um, the Olympics are perfect for this type of. We always talk about how nowadays, uh, if you look. There was an author on another radio channel uh, on a radio show this morning, and he, even he was saying, "I write books for a living. If I look on the internet and I see an article that's like two pages long, it's like, oh, I got to sit through this." The Olympics are perfect for like the ADD uh, quick fix. Right, you generation. watch it. You watch a you watch a swimming race. Yeah, you watch a race and you yeah. watch something else. You watch whatever. There's just a lot of different sports to to feed your curiosity or whatever. Uh, you can get a little bit of national pride behind it and. It works great, too, because it's such a huge event that brings the girls to TV as well. Like, I know right, g- girls yeah. make up a huge portion of NBC's audience for the Olympics, and that works really good in households like ours where we have, to do, we have to do so much sports all year that sometimes, you know, your wife Diving. or my girlfriend will get annoyed. But this is perfect because this brings them to the TV with us yep. to watch these things. Uh, gymnastics is a perfect example or figure skating during uh, winter. winter. Right. Uh, events that ladies love and you know what my girlfriend will get into things like michael phelps and we'll want to see uh how olympics plays out for him just as we will uh so it's a good event in that yeah, sense as well the olympics definitely registered to me one of the most memorable sporting events ever and the most i've ever been behind a team that wasn't my hometown team was the team usa canada finals in the olympics for hockey, hockey. yeah so that's a winter olympics but i mean i think the problem with the sports that the USA are good at in the Summer Olympics, like basketball, they just dominate typically. And if they don't, it's more of a, you lost, not that somebody else won. Right. Well, it'll be interesting with basketball this year because they have been challenged a little bit in their exhibitions. They've won them all so far. But remember that Jack McCollum said that he, will, he wouldn't pick against them, but don't be too mad at them if they don't win it because it will be harder this year. You know, European yeah. basketball has gotten better and better. But, yeah, the Dream Team is something that I'll be interested in checking out, and I'll be behind them. And I want to see Phelps. I want to see him set the record for most uh, medals. Uh, he's got a chance at that this year. And stories coming out again about condoms in the Olympics Village. You yeah, hear about that? I heard they're 150,000. giving fifty thousand. That's insane. They give what twenty five to each athlete or something crazy. Well, someone did the math on it. There's like ten thousand athletes, fifteen hundred, fifteen, one hundred fifty thousand condoms. That's fifteen per each. But the women wouldn't need them, so you got to cut that in half. So it'd be thirty per guy. Are they really having that much sex at the Olympics? Thirty per guy? I don't. I don't know. And he needs thirty different condoms just to get through two weeks at the Olympic Village. That's insane. They make the Olympic Village sound like a college. It's like campus. Mardi Gras. Or yeah. yeah, spring break. I mean, I could see why Olympic athletes might have some casual sex during the Olympics. Right, I mean, they're all they're perfect. Fit and, right, but yeah, it's remarkable those numbers. Uh, my second thing this week. 
We're going to talk about it a little bit later with Sarah as well. But Shea Weber signs his offer sheet or signs an offer sheet from the Flyers worth around 110 Surprised million. Surprised when it happened, dollars. I was anyway. Yeah, that, for that sure. That was offered at all because offer sheets seem so few and far between. But you know what? As much as I don't love the contract, and again, we'll talk about that with Sarah Kwok later as well. I don't like the structure of the contract, even though my team has done it with guys like Christian Erhoff. Yep. I, I like that teams are doing that. It almost seems like somewhat of collusion before that you had these restricted free agents out there and teams weren't going after them. Like guys like Sidney Crosby should never hit restricted free agency without 30 teams offering him an offer sheet, but it does, just doesn't happen in the NHL. So as much as teams don't like when other teams do it to them, I, I like that the Flyers were aggressive in pursuing him. Also... You mentioned earlier uh, the biggest trade in New York in reality is the Nash trade to the Rangers from Columbus. It's probably the one that registers the least because New York is more a basketball, baseball town. But Rick Nash, a superstar, kind of trapped in purgatory in Columbus, is now with the Rangers who all of a sudden look really, really good. They already have a solid defense, a really good goalie. For them to pull it off without having to give up Kreider or Stepan is amazing to me. Or the defenseman, McDonough. McDonough. Yep. Yeah, they gave up Dubinsky, role players. Dubinsky I mean, and... Solid role players, right. but role players to get a guy that's a legit superstar to go along with Brad Richards and... Gabrick. Gabrick. That's going to be a sick line. Yeah, they're scary. That's a... That, and the they, they were the number, in the league, I think. They were the number one seed last year. And Good coach. They do play it close to the vest. I wonder if they'll kind of let their superstars go a little bit. You have to, right? At least that line. Maybe uh, you have three lines that play defense responsible, and that Gabrick one is let go. is going to miss a little time to start, right? Didn't he kind of have some surgery here in the offseason? He always does, though. Who knows? We might not have hockey till Thanksgiving anyway. That'd be a bummer. You know, with CBA issues and things like that. But I Hopefully think the Rangers, out. Rangers are really scary. Yep, so that little hockey news. And I got some other New York trades to talk about with my next point. Go All ahead. right, my last thing, um, an interesting kind of NFL story. And, of course, we'll do more NFL on our other podcast, which uh, is at footballnation.com. And this week we have Adam Rank from NFL.com on the show. Uh, but I noticed today the Steelers uh, extended Mike Tomlin's contract. Uh, he is now going to be the Steelers coach through 2016. And in reality, knowing what we know about the Steelers and coaches, he's probably going to be the Steelers coach through For like, life, like as long as he wants till, to be. Yeah, until he doesn't want to be the coach anymore. And what a great hire they made. Uh, I remember it was it was uh, the Arizona coach wasn't Hunt right was the guy that was kind of rumored to have he was their the offensive coordinator I think at the yeah, time. yeah getting the job and Tomlin just blew him away in the interview and got the job and you know he's been great for them he's he's won one Super Bowl or did he win yeah he won one because Cower won the other one on the way out right yes so he's won a Super Bowl with them and he's a really cool coach. And I know people in Buffalo have kind of always envied the Steelers for making that hire. Yeah. As have other teams who have had coaches not work out. He's like, the, he seems like just the perfect guy to coach your the team. S- the Steelers since 1969 have had three coaches. That's unbelievable. Chuck Knoll, Bill Cower, Mike Tomlin, probably all Hall of Famers, right? Is Chuck Knoll a Hall of Famer? Yes. Bill Cower, I imagine, will be. Yeah, I think what keeps him out right now is just the constant threat of coming back coming back right so i know they said that that has kind of been what's against uh parcells yeah we we talk a lot about how it's a quarterback league and maybe now that's true more than anything and they do have a a very good quarterback in ben roethlisberger there but 
for a while, I mean, you could argue that it was more of a coaching league, and to have only three, to have that stability there since 1969 is really speaks well to their their hiring processes. Chuck Noll went into the Hall of Fame in 1993. All right, so yeah. He's been there for a while. So I just wanted to mention Steelers. What a great organization. Yeah, absolutely. As you mentioned, to be able to do that for three three coaches since the merger, it's unbelievable. My last thing this week, we talked about the big Rick Nash trade. It was a big trade week in general for the New York City. Ichiro moves from Seattle to the Yankees. Now, this is probably a bigger move in name maybe than... Yeah, and it would have been like a huge deal like maybe four years ago. Right, but he's 38 years old now. Still an upgrade over what they had, too. Sure, he's having a very bad year, but from what I understand, he hits a lot better away from the Seattle ballpark, so that should help. And he wouldn't be the first guy who showed up in New York and like his career was rejuvenated either. That right. tends to happen. I've heard the Yankees criticized in the, or by maybe right on our show. By people saying that they're not going to be the team to win at all because you can't win a World Series by just hitting home runs, and Ichiro provides a guy that can get on base. He made a lot of concessions, I guess. He's going to play out of position. He's not going to be in a lineup. right field, I think, maybe. Yeah, he's going to hit the bottom of the lineup. He's going to sit against left-handed pitching, possibly. So a lot of concessions made, but I don't know. They gave away next to nothing for him, so probably not much of a gamble. And like I said, they need a guy that can get on base. The other trade is more minor. I'm not going to claim to know how great offensive tackles are, but Jeff Ota goes to the Jets again for, I think, like a conditional seventh-round pick from Carolina. I heard someone say it was a very Patriotic move, Patriots-type move in a positive way by the Jets. Yeah, he was a late late pick, so they gave up next to nothing. And again, it might be a conditional pick. It might even be considerations or whatever they do in football. Uh but, yeah, they need a tackle. I think he's banged up, so it's the type of move where if he can come back healthy, he's a he's a solid player and a nice, nice trade for them. And that's a bust for Bills fans because, you know, the Bills and the Jets play in week one, and yeah. I think that the Bills kind of feel like if they're going to make the playoffs, they need that's to be better bar, than the for Jets. Sure. They, they, right. They'll get a good test right off the bat. they got to beat the Jets. And if the Bills are going to have playoffs, you assume the Patriots will be the Patriots this year. They're going to have to make a wild card. Right, and the Jets is the ger- most direct competition. And sure, yeah. They'll play in week one, I mean, in the really A- cool. In the AFC, uh, almost all the experts, you can go, if you start predicting divisions, it's the Patriots, Baltimore or Pittsburgh, probably Denver, Denver and then Houston. Houston, right. right. And really, whoever doesn't win between Baltimore and Pittsburgh Should is usually it. the number five wild card team. So there's really... Teams like San Diego, Buffalo, the Jets, those Titans, all be, maybe. Yeah. yeah, maybe Tennessee, all fighting for that sixth spot. So, yeah, the Bills can't afford I mean, at worst, they have to split with the Jets this year. Yeah, if the Bills aren't better than the Jets, the Bills aren't making the playoffs. I Pro- wouldn't right, think. Right, right. So, yeah. All right. That's it for three things today. Uh, like I said, we have Damon Hack, Dave Damashek, Sarah Kwok on the program today. Uh, let's take a break and bring our buddy Damon Hack on and talk to him about his move from Sports Illustrated to Golf Channel. All 
Our first guest today is from Los Angeles, California, and is a graduate of UCLA. He then went on to UC Berkeley, where he earned a master's degree in journalism. Professionally, he has covered the San Francisco 49ers for the Sacramento Bee and the New York Knicks for Newsday. He then moved on to cover golf in the NFL for the New York Times. He has spent the last several years as a senior writer for Sports Illustrated covering golf and the NFL. He recently announced plans to cover golf on television for the Golf Channel. Today he is making his fifth appearance on the Sportscasters. A warm welcome to the very talented and kind Damon Hack. How you doing, Damon? I'm good, Stephen. How are you? You know, I call it the Golf Channel, but it's actually called Golf Network, right? No, it's Golf Channel. Oh, it is correct. Golf it used channel. to be okay. the Golf Channel, and now it is Golf Channel. So, yeah, I mean, we're really excited for you. Why don't you just tell us a little bit about the decision and uh, what you're looking forward to in the new role and kind of like transitioning to being full-time golf. Yeah, I'll tell you what, it was a really interesting decision uh, that, that came my way. I spent a week at the U.S. Open in San Francisco covering uh, that great national championship with Webb Simpson. And then a week later, I went to Golf Channel to do some fill-in work for their morning drive television show. And they uh, they ended up liking what I did on the on the network and offered me a job. So I'm going to be heading down to Florida in August. I'll be doing uh, morning drives, some Golf Central, just doing a lot of different reporting for uh, a channel that has uh, a great affiliation with NBC and covers the, the the game that I actually love to cover the most. I've covered football, I've covered basketball, but golf really uh, speaks to my heart and soul as a journalist. I'm looking forward to covering it on television full time. We were kind of talking off the air a little bit about how excited you are to kind of take back your NFL Sundays and be able to just watch the games as a fan. But I do wonder, do you think you're going to miss writing and reporting about football? Or, you know, do you think you're just going to kind of move on and it's like, you know, golf's just your thing? Yeah, I don't think I'll miss covering uh, the NFL as as a reporter. It's gotten so intense and the – as great as it is to, to be at a Super Bowl and to cover some great big events, it's a little bit draining, I've found. And I've missed being a fan on Sundays because I've been working on Sundays and trying to come up with angles. And I'll miss the, the NFL reporters that I've gotten to know through the years, a handful of, of players, Aaron Rodgers, Peyton Manning, guys that I've interviewed that I really enjoy seeing, uh, Adrian Peterson, Arian Foster. I've gotten to meet meet guys uh, both the inside and outside the locker room, Bob Kraft, John Mara, the owners of the Patriots and Giants, respectively. I've had some, some good bonds and relationships with these men, and I'll miss them. But I'll, I'll tell you what, I'm really excited about having my football Sundays back just as a fan and to be able to sit in front of a, a TV and, and, and kind of just enjoy what the, so many of us do uh, on our weekends. Well, we're really happy for you here at the Sportscasters, and we're going to miss talking football with you, but we're excited to talk golf with you anyway. And it was a really interesting weekend because for the first time in a long time, it felt like there was a player out there just dominating. You know, we've had, what was it, a streak of nine players who uh, won majors for the first first time, ended, and it just looked like Adam Scott was just dominating. It looked like he was a step above everyone else. It reminded me of Vintage Tiger almost in a way where this guy – was just taking the whole thing over, and then Sunday happened. And I guess I want to get your opinion, and I, I just wonder, what do, you, what do you think went wrong on Sunday? You think it's just, like, do you think it's, it's choking? Do you think it's just having one bad day out of four? I mean, what, what do you think happened to Adam Scott that last day? 
Yeah, I think I forgot to him when he made that birdie on 14 and knew he had, you know, four holes to play to, you know, with a four-shot lead, maybe he got a little bit ahead of himself. He was playing so beautifully and looked so confident. That was the thing, just to see him walk on the golf course. You're absolutely right. You know, the, the look that he had was the, of a guy in complete control. He has a caddy on his bag, and Steve Williams, who was on Tiger Woods' bag for 13 of his uh, 14 major championships, so the look of those two guys together was almost like these guys are bulletproof right now, but, but no one is bulletproof in a major championship. But we've seen it happen before, whether it was over a long period on the Sunday, like Greg Norman, or one awful hole like Jean Vandeveld at the Open Championship in 1999 right. at Carnoustie. Sometimes, you know, you, you, you don't get a championship by playing 70 great holes or 67 or 68 great holes. You have to play two great holes. And Adam Scott, for whatever reason, um, maybe got a little bit ahead of himself, started to miss some shots after playing almost a perfect round of golf on Sunday. Had a couple of early, really, but really bounced back strong. He just uh, lost it there, and it was really unfortunate and tough to watch. You know, you mentioned this caddy, Stevie Williams, and I noticed on Twitter as I was watching the final round, people were saying, you know, Stevie's going to bring him home, Stevie's going to bring him home. But I wonder, was it just the case of Scott, he lost his putter at the end, and he couldn't make a putt, and really, I mean, there's nothing that a caddy can do at that point, right? Yeah, I mean, he missed a couple of the short putts. Obviously, Adam Scott's one of the players that uses a long putter. You know, he anchors it under his under his chin right there on his chest, and and, it, and he's gone to that putter because he was really struggling with the short, traditional, you know, conventional putter. So he went to a long putter, felt better about his game. His stats aren't that much better with a long putter, but the rest of his game has gotten tighter and gotten better. And, you know, when you feel like you're a better player, if, if you think it's because of the driver you're using or the putter you're using, it usually affects the rest of your game positively. But we saw, even though he had a putter that he liked, he was not able to make those crucial, you know, the putt on 18 he missed. He had the short putt on, on 16 that got him into trouble as well. So he had these kind of makeable par putts to get, get home. And it's interesting watching him all day, even though he was making a lot of pars, to me his his birdie putts were always a little short, a little shy, and you know that's what happened, especially on the putt on eighteen. He just kept kind of you know almost like short arming his putts or or just leaving them a little bit short, not putting with conviction. And to me, that was a little bit of an indication of a guy that maybe wasn't in complete control of that part of his game, at least. You know, I feel a little bit bad because. And I'm guilty of it too because I went right into this and wanted to talk about Adam Scott losing this tournament and completely ignoring the fact that Ernie Els won it. I know a lot of people have, and I just did it too. I, I just said, you know, kind of, you know, oh, Adam Scott lost this tournament and ignored the fact that somebody else won it. What did you think of Els' weekend and where does this major rank on kind of the wow? Where did. Where did that come from? Because, I mean, Ernie Owls has always been a golfer I, I respected and knew was a great player, but I don't know if I really thought he was the kind of player who could still win a major. Maybe kind of educate me on where Owls' game has been and how his weekend went where he was able to put himself in the spot to take advantage of a meltdown from from Adam Scott as opposed to someone who like Tiger Woods who had a triple bogey and kind of took himself out of a position to take advantage of that mistake. 
Yeah, Ernie, another player that was uh, a great putter, you know, using a traditional putter, lost his putting stroke and has gone to a belly putter. Someone who, you know, missed out on the Masters, did not get into the top 50 in time to be invited to Augusta National. Someone who's lost some close tournaments this year at New Orleans earlier in the year, at the transitions in Tampa, missing a couple short, short putts down the stretch. You know, he's a Hall of Famer. He had three major championships going into uh, the Rhythm and St. Anne's British Open. So he's a player with tremendous uh, resume and respect throughout the game, but someone who was kind of thought of a, as a, a great golfer of yesteryear, not someone who many of us expected to be in contention on Sunday. I believe his, his odds may have been something like 100 to 1 or, wow. or even more than that at, at all the, uh, the betting houses in the U.K., so... He kind of just was a plotter. He was kind of hanging around, you know, hanging around. He was numb afterwards was his description when he, when he found out that he won, A, because he likes Adam Scott so much, and B, you know, he was six shots back going into the final nine holes. So he kind of was able to play a pretty stress-free, you know, off nine, shot 32, you know, really you know, made that great birdie putt on 18 to put a little extra pressure on Adam Scott. But, you know, I don't want to say Ernie Els was an accidental tourist because I don't want to take away from his accomplishments. But he, he did not expect to be hoisting that Claire Chubb, you know, when he, when he signed for his scorecard uh, on the end of his round on Sunday afternoon. But for a guy that's had a lot of major championships taken away from him, you know, Phil Mickelson of the 2004 Masters or, or Tiger Woods time and time again in different venues, for him to be able to kind of have a, a, a major championship fall into his lap the way it did, you know, I'm sure he will take it. He feels you know, shattered and gutted for Adam Scott because they play on President's Cup teams together and they're very good friends. And Adam Scott may be very good friends with everybody on, on the PJ Tour, a very well-liked person, you know, possibly too nice, some people say. They doesn't kind of have that killer instinct. And maybe we saw a little bit of that on the, on the back nine for him on Sunday. But I'm sure Ernie Ellis, you know, when he wakes up, you know, you know after that, uh, that uh, championship, he's going to say, look, I have four major championships now, two U.S. Opens and two British Opens, and I'm not giving any of them back. No kidding. You know, I, I, I kind of laugh because it seems like with every hole, with every day, with every birdie or every bogey, we go back and forth on Twitter with, oh, Tiger Woods is back, or oh, Tiger Woods isn't back, <laughs> and if you think about it, he's really had a pretty good season, I mean, he's won tournaments, he's been in contention at, at the majors this year, you know, I, I really thought he was going to win the U.S. Open a couple weeks ago for the first couple days of that tournament. Uh, how are we going to assess his year? Does it all come down to the PGA for, for him? Is he kind of the kind of golfer that it's to the point where it's majors or nothing, or Will he still be kind of looked at as a player who's had one of the best seasons on tour, regardless of how the PGA finishes for him? If you ask people that cover the game, I mean, Tiger used to say if he didn't win a major championship in a year, it was a lost season. You know, he's obviously not that same dominant player that he was. You know, in the early part of of, of the 2000s when he was winning several majors a year or winning four majors in a row. He hasn't won a major since 2008. He's had this scandal. He's had injury. He's had a new swing. So there's a lot going on in Tiger Woods' game and in his life that at age 36, you know, he may want to hold himself to the same standard. We may want to hold him to that old standard, but I'm not sure that we can. You know, when I look at Tiger's year right now, he's the only player on the PGA Tour to have won three tournaments so far this year, uh, but he has not won a major championship. So, the fact that his whole career has really been about winning majors, his whole 
chase of, of Jack Nicholas's mark of 18, and Tiger's been stuck on 14 since June of 2008, and we can't help but wonder how he would assess his own year. And we don't really know until after the PGA Championship in August, but for him to go through another year without winning a major championship, that would take him to 2013. You're, we're talking about pushing on five years without Tiger Woods winning a major championship, and sure. A lot of great golfers have had lulls in their games, you know, in their careers. Ben Hogan and Jack Nicklaus went years without winning majors. It, it does happen to the great, great players, but, you know, Tiger Woods still has a lot of work to do to catch Jack Nicklaus. So I think in his heart of hearts, even though he's seen some success this year and seen some steps taken forward with the hopes of winning tournaments again, uh, until he starts winning majors again, I don't think we'll look at him the same way, and definitely his competitors won't look at him the same way either. You know, I was thinking about something when I was watching everything happen with Adam Scott. I was thinking about Rory McIlroy and kind of how he fell apart in the last round of the Masters last year and came back at the U.S. Open and won it. And I was, I, it just kind of got me thinking about him and kind of how expectations were greater for him going into this season, kind of almost like the way the way we are now, we look for someone to... to to take over, you know, like when Michael Jordan retired, it's like, well, it's Kobe Bryant the next Jordan, or it's LeBron James the next Jordan, and I think we're looking for that in golf in a way, and we've had this long streak, like I said, the nine uh, majors in a row where it was a new champion, but how do you assess, kind of almost the same question with Tiger Woods, with Rory McIlroy, how do you, ex- how do you look at his season so far, and what does the PGA mean to him? Is he Is he kind of another guy that just because of our expectations and how we they raised after last year, do we need to see him winning majors every year, or is this just kind of a young kid that's maturing as a golfer? Yeah, I think what happened with Rory was the fact that he won that U.S. Open at Congressional last year in such dominant fashion. It reminded a lot of us of Tiger Woods. The fact that Tiger was still kind of, you know, you know, thrashing about in his own game, you know, trying to find a swing. You know, Tiger was missing cuts and, and just not playing good golf in the majors and, and to see, you know, this young kid who a lot of us have already kind of anointed as this next great player who is really showing the talent and, you know, had shot the great 62 at Quail Hollow and then he shoots this incredible score to win by eight at Congressional. I was like, oh my goodness, this looks so familiar. You know, Tiger won his first major by 12. Rory wins his first major by eight. You know, look at this natural swing, this great charismatic player, and we were all kind of ready to anoint him the next Tiger. And, and you know, that was not just the media, though. There was Patrick Harrington saying, you know, why are we looking at Tiger as the guy to break Jack Nicholas's record? Rory McIlroy is the guy to do it. And, and, and that was Saturday of the U.S. Open. That wasn't even after that the tournament was over. That was before the final round. So I don't think it's just the media that has a tendency to do it. I think we all have a, a tendency to do it to to look for that next great player. Like you said, Magic and Bird to Jordan to, to, to Kobe to, to LeBron. That's what we do. And I tell you what, there's a lot of talented players. You know, the fact that there were nine straight first-time winners, the fact that there are 16 different winners of the last 16 majors tells me that there's a lot of depth, a lot of talent, and, and you know, it's a, lot, a little bit early to try to anoint Rory McIlroy, the next anything, when you've got Webb Simpson and Ricky Fowler and Dustin Johnson and Bubba Watson and just so many guys that are coming out and having a lot of success. So between now and the PGA, what will you be looking to see? What do you want to see happen on the courses? What kind of storylines will you be following as we get ready for the final major of the season? 
Well, I, I tell you, Tiger is still continue to fascinate me. I, I really want to see how Tiger responds. This is two straight majors now, the U.S. Open and the British Open, where he's had chances to do some things on the weekend. And I want to say he's plus 13 in his rounds on the weekend this year in the major championships. It's just unbelievable for a guy who used to be so rock solid on the weekends. And then Phil Mickelson, who beat Tiger by 11 shots, 64 to 75, at Pebble Beach in February. You know, where has Phil Mickelson been? You know, we all expected him to be in contention at Olympic Club, a U.S. Open, you know, in his native state of California, and he played awful golf, and he was nowhere to be found missing the cut and Royal Lytham in St. Anne's. So I want to see what the Phil Mickelson's game is um, at Kiowa as well. So I think there's still a lot of great things going on. Player of the Year is still up in the air on the PGA Tour in 2012, and obviously the Ryder Cup is coming up in Medina uh, outside of Chicago this fall. So I think there's a lot of great storylines to be written as this year goes forward. All right, the sportscasters finishing up here with Damon Hack, formerly of SI, now settling into a new role at Golf Channel. Uh, Twitter has changed, right? What's your new your Twitter name now? Yes, Damon Hack uh, GC at Damon Hack GC. What can we be looking for as far as following you here in the next couple weeks and settling into the new role? Yeah, you know, it's going to be interesting. I'm not sure exactly what I'll be doing right away, you know, other than filling out paperwork, but <laughs> I'm going to probably have some role at the PGA Championship, either in studio in Orlando or actually in South Carolina covering that event for the channel. And obviously the Ryder Cup coming up this fall, I'll be involved as well. Um, they, they want to put me in a lot of different roles. Morning Drive, which is the morning talk show, which is what I did in June. Um, Golf Central, of course, the news program. They have the Grey Goose program on Wednesday. So, it's going to be fun doing broadcasting. That's really what I went to journalism school, you know, about, gosh, 18 years ago was to get into broadcasting. Instead, I kind of went the writing route, and now I'm kind of coming home back to broadcasting. I love talking about sports. I love talking about golf, and I think this will be a really good fit. Last thing, and it's kind of off the beaten path, but I'm just curious. Will you get into the Olympics at all? What it would mean these next couple of weeks, what will you be – what gets you to turn into the Olympics? What events or what storylines? Anything? Does that is that a, a something that registers on your sports calendar? It does, Stephen. That's a, a great question, and I'd love to tell you, listeners, that the greatest sporting event that I've ever covered was not a, a Masters or a Super Bowl, but it was the 2004 Olympic Games in Athens. I was a reporter for the New York Times, and I, I spent a, a, nearly a month in Greece, away, away from my then girlfriend, now wife, and it was uh, it was a difficult assignment, but I covered basketball, I covered volleyball, I covered wrestling, boxing. It was just a plethora of events and, and stories of all these young people that are coming from all over the world, and it was just a fascinating event to cover, just to be among so many international talents, you know, young people that spend years and years working on their crafts for a 10-second race or, or a, a one-mile run. It was just an incredible event to cover. To me, it's as, it's as intense as any sporting event I've ever covered. So I will look forward uh, to NBC's coverage of, of the uh, Olympic Games in London. Well, Damon, congratulations again on the new gig at Golf Channel. We look forward to checking you out there, and thanks for joining us again. I'm sure we'll talk to you in August sometime. Uh, we'll talk a little PGA. Thank you so much, Stephen. I look forward to it, buddy. All right, talk to you soon. Take care. All right, thanks, and again, 
congratulations go out to Damon Hack uh, for being on the show and for his big move to the broadcast side of things at Golf Channel. Like I said, today we're going to miss talking football with him, uh, but I, it's safe to say he's officially our golf guy now. I don't know if we've had yeah. a, like, a main golf guy. We've kind of bounced around. We had Alan Shipnuck on. We used to talk a lot of golf with Zachy Score when he was Zachy Score. We could um, probably slip some football in with Damon still. I imagine he's going to pay attention still. Yeah, you're, <laughs> probably, you're probably right about that. Uh, quick book club update. Uh, I guess probably one more show of this being the book club book of the month because next week will be July 31st, I think, when we record. So maybe we'll pick out the book for August next week, but still mention one more time. Dream Team, how Michael, Magic, Larry, Charles, and the greatest team of all time conquered the world and changed the game of basketball forever. It's kind of talking to Don a little bit before we started this about how sometimes the way things will work, there's so many books that we get, ones that we ask for, ones that we don't ask for, that I don't have time to read them all, and often what will happen is I'll read as much as I can up until the point that the author is on the show so that I can do a proper interview with them. And then after that, I'll kind of blow off the book, move on to the next one, whatever. But I think it's a credit to Jack and a credit to the content and the book that he wrote. I haven't put Dream Team down yet. I mean, I'm still reading it. I read a couple of chapters last night. I'm kind of into the last third of it now. And it's just, it's it's a great story. And there's it's one where there's really so much I didn't know about a topic. Like, hmm. you know... I knew that the Dream Team went to Barcelona and won the gold medal, and they're one of the best teams of all time. But I didn't know things like them scrimmaging college teams or scrimmaging each other. And it's just, it's a really great book, so we highly recommend it. And he was on our July 10th show, which is two ago. So if you want to listen to our interview with Jack, season two, episode number 26, you can do that. And again, the book is Dream Team How Michael Magic, Larry Charles, and the Greatest Team of All Time. Conquer the world and change the game of basketball forever. We'll take a break and be right back. Our next guest is from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and is a graduate of Indiana University. He has worked in television, producing pages for Jimmy Kimmel Live, Sports Geniuses, and The Man Show. He is a pioneer in the podcasting industry, having hosted Damashek On Demand for ESPN, the Dave Damashek Show, powered by AccuScore, Days of Thunder for the Ace Broadcasting Network, and his current show, the Dave Damashek Football Program for NFL.com. He also writes a blog for NFL.com, produces a weekly shame report, and speculates on some of the most significant moments in NFL history during his brilliant NFL animations. Warm sportscasters, welcome to our good buddy, Dave Damashek. What's up, Dave? Fellas, how are we? Oh, we're doing really good. We haven't talked to you on this program in forever because the last time we had you on, in April sometime, you were on the Football Nation version of this podcast, so it's good to have you back on what we now call the Sportscasters proper. All right, fine. (laughs) (laughs) I call it Hi-Hat Central because that's what you've been giving me. You guys are such fancy pants with all your fancy bookings that uh, you forgot the name Damage yet. Well, we weren't. You know who we had on last week, which is kind of a blast from the past. We haven't on him in a while. Zach, uh, Ac- uh, what does he call himself now? Sooner Zach, formerly yeah. AccuScore Zach. You guys still keep in contact? Shit. You guys do stuff once in a while still? We kibitz uh, here and there, and in fact, we'll probably yap with them and 
front of the college football season to get his take on uh, the big shakeup there, the final four, as it were, for college football. So, yeah, we'll, we'll be catching up at some point very soon. So, tell us, so, oh, cool thing. I mentioned the NFL animations, and it's pretty cool because you made Scott Norwood's field goal sail through the uprights, much to the delight yeah. of Bills fans everywhere this week, huh? Yes, it's nice. Uh, the uh, the wish fulfillment that uh, that uh, that these NFL segments do, in case people don't know what they are, is uh, you know it's basically we play what if Dwight Clark had dropped the catch in uh, 1981 against the Cowboys. What if uh, what if uh, Mike Vick hadn't, or what if Kevin Cobb hadn't gotten hurt a couple of years ago? Mike Vick wouldn't have taken the job. But what if he had? Uh, what what if that hadn't happened? And like you say, what if Scott Norwood had made that kick? How with the landscape look different so yes and they just uh they just showed that one on the uh on nfl network and it's on nfl.com and on the network just before that i saw your buffalo bills arriving to training camp so fellas we're just about there yeah i don't know about you but it's weird because last offseason there was all the speculation with the lockout and everything i don't know why this offseason just felt like it took forever and all these guys are getting arrested. It's like I think every NFL team will be glad when their players are just finally at camp this year. Yeah, I don't know if it's uh, it, it's one. Of, they're one of two two culprits here. Maybe they're combining the two culprits that I'm pointing the finger at. One, the month of July. I don't know what it is with the month of July, but this is maybe it's the last gas before we have to uh, kick our. Um, kick it into high gear professionally so the players let their hair down and then trouble ensues or is it feline related mascots because <laughs> think about it if you go nittany lions we know what's gone on with them tough yeah. you, have, you have the detroit lions we know how their offseason's been the cincinnati Bengals is a tiger cat and that you know they haven't really done anything this offseason that's bad but their body of work speaks for itself and then the Jacksonville Jaguars first round draft pick, Justin Blackman's been in some troubles. So I mean, listen, you know, if you're not gonna see the smoke in the fire, then uh, you know, then just go ahead and bury your head back in the sand. But I'm but my head's up and my eyes are wide open. Kind of the last big thing before football season gets going here is gonna be the Olympics. Does that register for you? Is that something as a sports fan that you have on your calendar? Are you gonna spend a lot of time? or as much time as you can watching the Olympics the next couple of weeks, or do you blow it off? Yeah, I dig the Olympics. Um, it's interesting. I, I like the way the casual TV watchers who normally don't watch sports get sucked into it. And it's weird because obviously millions upon millions of us have all who've sampled different sports around the world, we all seem to understand football, basketball, baseball, and to some degree hockey. Um but the ones that people like when they watch the Olympics are like luge and, and uh, water curl. polo. Yeah, it's weird. Like, if you like those, you're really going to love the one where the 11 guys in, in uh, helmets and pads run into <laughs> one another. You know, like that one, that one works a little bit better. They, I feel like they're contrarians. Like, oh, football's dumb, but curling, that's where it's at. But, um, yeah, I'll, I'll sit and watch all those. And um, especially – the basketball, in spite of the fact I've spoken out repeatedly, I hate that we send our best. We shouldn't be doing that. We should. Uh, America should not be sending our best basketball players because it's our game, and when we lose to a team like Spain, it's a humiliation. I love the idea that in 1992, 
we say, like, after we lose in 88, 92, we come back with, all right, world, you want to play games? Fine. <laughs> we're sending Magic, and we're sending Michael, and we're sending every Clyde Drexler, and all the best players in the world, I mean, in America, a.k.a., well, and also the world, and we will teach you what America is capable of when we give you our, our full force. And then we beat everybody by 290 points a game. And then uh, then it was like, all right, message delivered. Let's get back to the college kids. So even if we lose, we have the fallback of like, yeah, don't make us send our best players. You just beat our JV. But, you know, it still kept up with the rest of the world. Instead, we had to push it and keep sending the NBA superstars back. And then we... We lost, and now we have no 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 fallback anymore. You see what I mean? We should just retire dream teams, but whatever. I'll watch it, and we'll see what happens. Yes, I, but yeah, I, I like watching those things. It, it definitely for football fans is going to grease the skids for us into football season. There's two weeks eaten up as we normally would just sit and have to endure the dog days of baseball season. And totally to your point, I read something the other day that. There is more water polo coverage on NBC than basketball coverage. So kind of to your point about how the kind of more random sports register for whatever reason more during the Olympics. Yeah, there's a reason why Wide World of Sports isn't on ABC anymore. Nobody watched those fringy weirdo sports, but somehow when the Olympics are on, oh, we all become captivated. As a matter of fact, we're not just captivated. Everybody becomes an expert on all these meaningless sports like, oh, I love the way that guy does the biathlon. Oh, he's a great uh, guy. Like, why? We don't know. You don't know anything about him. We don't who know. Who, who knows anything? I could be an analyst on it. And matter of fact, I've said it before. I'll say it again. I could make the team a lot of those Olympic teams. So could you. How many? I, I like, really, I would like you to put this to the test. You guys are younger than I am. I'd like you to sample this. I want you to go out for the U.S. luge team in 2014 because i how, how hard could it be there can only be like two or three people that lose in this country right didn't chris chelios do annou- that by announcing you're doing it you make the team they'll be like yeah 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 please come out bring a friend too <laughs> i think chris chelios made the luge team one year or tried out or something like that well there you go and I, herschel walker tried out for right. the uh I maybe even made the bobsled. I don't know what he does. But, I mean, by the way, that's the most ridiculous. I know that's not a summer Olympic sport. But the re- most ridiculous, redundant thing in, in maybe all of sports is that they have a two-man and a four-man <laughs> bobsled competition. What, what do you need the two guys in the middle for? In the, the two-man, the one guy steers it and the guy in the back pushes it. What do we have the four-man one for when the two guys are in the middle? They just sit there the whole time. What, they, they serve no function. Get rid of it. It'd be like having passengers in a NASCAR race. Yes, it's ridiculous. Yeah. Have you – so I got a text from my buddy. You know, I have a good friend in Pittsburgh, and he's like, I'm parking at the Pirates game right now. I want to go every night. Have you bought in yet? Are you uh, believing in this Pirates team so far this summer? Of course I've bought into the Buckos. And, you know, I, let me clarify, for any savvy Pittsburgh Pirates fan, I abandoned the Pirates because of their ownership and their ownership's refusal until a couple of years ago to actually start spending money trying to be a winner. The Nutting family more or less was treating it like a business proposition how can we make the most money and spend the least? And, you know, meantime, they're 
market equivalent Milwaukee Brewers, let's say, were spending twice as much and playing winning baseball, the idea like, well, what are we supposed to do? We're a small market team. We can't compete was out the window when you saw teams like the the Brewers and, for that matter, the Twins and so on. Um, but now that the Nutting family's spending money, and lo and behold, look at that. All of a sudden, they're a legitimate team now and, and should be. And I don't care if that. I'd love for them to win the division. I'd love for them to make the postseason this year. But more importantly, the way they set up, they really, the, the these uh, Pirates might be halfway decent for the next three or four years. So, yes, of course, it's very exciting stuff. We were kind of – on our other podcast this week, we had your buddy Rank on. So like an all-Dave Damashek football program week for the sportscasters. Excellent. And we were looking at some of the rankings on NFL.com, some of your rankings. And I have to pick a bone right away with you. You really – now, I did give you an out, potentially assuming you made these rankings before – Drew Brees had signed, but you don't really think Drew Brees is the seventh best fantasy quarterback this year, do you? Well, let's count them out here. First of all, it's not like I'm saying Drew Brees of 2011 or the Saints of 2011. I, you know, how how confident are you in a team that doesn't have a head coach? I'm really confident. We did it last year, Dave. Sean well, pa- you know, Sean Payton broke right, his leg last year, and we had to go to the model that basically they're going to use, and they won each game they played without Payton. It's funny because I have been saying that for months, and I just uh, heard some other people now finally addressing the fact that NFL coaches, not just Sean Payton, but every NFL head coach must be shaking in their boots right now, right? They're like, what if the Saints go 14-2 and two without a coach? <laughs> And be like, oh yeah, well, you know what? I don't. Know. Every owner in the league should be like, yeah. How about we pay you about forty k a year from here out, because <laughs> apparently you don't matter that much. Um, I, yeah, let's count them out. Okay, I would take Aaron Rodgers to me is number one. Period. I'll give you that. And not just QBs. If you have the first overall pick in your draft this year, Aaron Rodgers should be number one. He's he's a machine. Um, I like, I you know I think I like Cam Newton a little bit better than Breeze. You have met- I like Marcus. First of all, Colston, those knees are they always are given out on him, and at some point it's just going to be over for him. I don't know when, and you know they they um, lost Meacham. They, they lose Meacham. I guess Lance Moore maybe steps up. The guy, I mean, the key is uh, Jimmy Graham. I mean, D- Drew Brees, essentially, in a lot of situations, just jump balls to Jimmy Graham. All right, so I guess I can cut you a little slack on Brees. I don't know. I still think, I, I mean, I wouldn't draft him any, or rank him any lower than third, probably, but it's debatable. I mean, probably one thing you would agree with, that after him, there is a there is a drop-off. Even You know, there's about... Well, Stafford's going to have a big year. Cam Newton should have a good year. Um, Tony Romo, I think, is going to have a gigantic year. I like the Cowboys' offense a lot, no matter how Desi Bryant behaves um, <laughs> when he's at home. Uh, I still think that offense is going to be really big this year. Uh, so, I just, I, uh, so as far as I'm concerned, I just don't want to gamble on what it has become the most important position in fantasy. Your QB is now more important than your than your running back. 
you know, last season when we had you on right around the same time, I asked you for a sleeper and you said DeMarco Murray. And sure, he had trouble with his ankle, but to have said that when you said it was a great, great pick. Who do you have this year as sleepers? Well, first of all, you shouldn't sound so surprised because, uh, you know, listen, Amishek knows his business. I will say this year I like uh, my sleepers are, they want me to get really wild. Well, first of all, I like Titus Young. Okay, the, um, from Detroit. The rookie from Detroit. I think that, um, that you know, obviously Calvin Johnson's going to get a ton of attention. Not that that's any different than it was last year. But I think that um, more and more Titus Young will see some passes in what should be a gangbusters offense, especially when you consider the Lions in the offseason did nothing to fix their atrocious secondary. So once again, they're going to be in a ton of shootouts. Um, so I love those. I love all that, the guys. In, from a fantasy perspective, I love all those Lions this year. Inclu- and also, Mikel LeSure should be great. I bet you by midseason, he is the number one back there and scoring a lot of touchdowns for them. Remember, he's a year removed from what was expected to be a big rookie season, but then he got hurt in training camp. So, um, I like uh, I like those guys a lot. If you want me to get really wild, I will say... Take as your backup QB, take a flyer on him, Blaine Gabbert. I kind of like mm-hmm. Blaine Gabbert. I know that's cuckoo, but if he's ever going to be productive, it's going to be in that offense with the weapons that they've now given him. And um, another guy who sort of fits that description, I like Matt Castle this year. That offense should be terrific. John Baldwin in his second year, if you'll remember, John Baldwin was the first-round draft pick a year ago for KC. He got and punched in the mouth. Yeah, he's got a lot of he's got a lot of T.O., Randy Moss, uh, Chad '85 in him. Um, he, he might be a diva, and then he proved that by punching Thomas Jones in the mouth in <laughs> um, in, in training camp, uh, or or he got punched. I should I, right, I don't yeah, remember yeah. what. Either way, it was bad news. But then, as the second half of the season wore on, he started making big time catches and putting up some nice numbers. In year two, I think he's going to be a guy who no one's looking at that you're going to be able to jump in there and grab, and he's going to, and he's going to be productive. That KC offense should be gangbusters this year. You had Marshawn Lynch at number four. Was that before his arrest? Yes. Okay. It was before that, and I assume he's going to be on the shelf for at least a couple of games, if not more, um, when the commission gets done with him. But I really do like that uh, offensive line, good good young offensive line. If you go back and you look at recent drafts and look at some of the personnel moves that the Seahawks have made over the last couple of years, actually since you know the Pete Carroll era began, one of the big things that they have done is spend a lot of um, money and high-round draft picks on, on that line. So it was young, and then it kept getting banged up. Um, but last year, by no coincidence, it gets healthy, and Marshawn Lynch takes off, and that team starts winning games. That team has a good defense. I think they're going to be a good team in general in a brutal conference, unfortunately for them. But I do think that lines come together, and when Marshawn Lynch is actually on the field, I, I don't think he's going to slow down. You know, you as uh, Buffalo people know, but it seems like nationally people forget. People ask, people ask questions like, where did this Marshawn Lynch come from? Well, he was great. I mean, he was a first-round draft pick in fantasy until a couple of years ago, and then everything start, started to get convoluted for him there with um, 
I guess that was a few years ago, but between uh, McGahee and then Fred Jackson and everything, and then it kind of got too muddled and he moved on. But Marshawn Lynch is a high-pedigree guy. Yeah, absolutely. The only problem for him was he ran his SUV into some lady on Chippewa Street here in Buffalo, and then he kind of fell out of flavor with the organization because of that. Glass house is glass house. (laughs) (laughs) You know, um, we, we were talking earlier about how the Steelers extended Coach Tomlin today, and we kind of realized it's, it's something you don't think about, but they've only had three coaches in the Super Bowl or in the yeah the Super Bowl era since the merger, 1969. They've only had three coaches. What an unbelievable organization the Steelers are, and what how great it must be as a fan of that organization to know that you're you have stability and I don't know you must love Coach Tomlin, right? It's amazing, you know, and I don't know why I would ever have doubted uh, the Rooney family, but when they you know way back in what was that 92, I guess is when. They hired uh, Tower, 91, 92-ish in that range. I guess it was probably after 92. Um, at the time, the big debate was that the, the supposedly the two finalists for the gig to replace uh, um, Chaz Knoll were Tower and Dave Wonstadt. Wonstadt, I thought, oh, this is the guy they should get. He's a Pitt guy. He's from Pittsburgh, went to, um, went to Pitt and built those great Dallas Cowboys defenses. So this is the guy to go out there and get. Who's this tower? He's a, he coaches special teams for the Cleveland Browns. Why is this even a debate? Um, tower, obviously, a Pittsburgh native, too, but it seemed like the guy who had the track record was Wonstadt. Wonstadt, you know, goes and coaches the Bears, and uh, you guys are probably too young to remember, but things didn't go all that great for him. Nope. And continued to not go all that great for him as a head coach. And Tower is, you know, just about a legend, if only he could have won a couple more postseason games, but still had a spectacular run. Then, uh, what is it, five years ago, six years ago now, when the job is up, my thought was, well, of course, they have to hire, again, Russ Grimm, offensive lineman for Pitt, had the great run in D.C. on that uh, with the Hogs and the Redskins, and, you know, has been one of the, the main guys with Tower as a coach, or Coach Kenny Wisenhunt. One of those two guys, surely, is a great choice. Mike Tomlin, what? <laughs> Who is he? Wait, he he's, been a, he's been a coach for a He's been a, a, a coordinator for, for what? For a year? What? Wait a second. Where, who, he went to William and Mary? What? Who is this guy? And they're thinking of hiring him? Well, obviously, he's not getting hired. I wonder if it'll be Grimm or Wisenhunt. And then you hear Tomlin, oh, well, we were just blown away by him. I was, I, 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 I was disappointed. And then, of course, you know, uh, uh, once again, the Roonies proved me wrong, and I'm happy to be proven wrong. Yeah, it's fantastic. Like you say, 1969 to 2012, they've had three head coaches. Three. Made. Unbelievable. Uh, the Sportscasters are here with our good buddy Dave Damashek, who you can find on Twitter, at Damashek. And you're all over the NFL can Network. I tell you, can I can I tell you one more thing, though, actually? Uh, 1969, you know who they offered the job to, and the man who almost who, who came very close to taking the job but ultimately decided not to, one Mr. Joe Paterno. Oh, my. Wow. wow. How that would have altered wouldn't history. That, yes. Wouldn't that make for a fascinating edition of the NFL? Absolutely. The, one of the dealers that hired Joe Paterno in 
why don't you lay out for us like all the things you'll be doing this year on NFL Network and NFL.com so we can keep track of everything because as you've been there the last couple of years, your role keeps getting bigger and bigger, and we want to make sure we can keep track of everything and see everything and tweet about it and whatever. Well, you're sweet. I'll do uh, – yeah, this year I'm going to be doing um, some fantasy stuff. I don't know exactly how much um, because I'm going to be on the road for the bulk of the season, mostly for Sunday games. Um, I'm going to be doing the, um, the Cars.com uh, NFL Fans Ultimate Road Trip. I'll go around all different stadiums, all different uh, cities, NFL cities, and sort of, you know me, I like to, I like to fulfill dreams. That's my way. <laughs> you know, like I say, I'm, like, I'm very much like Gene. Um, you can rub on me if you wish, and uh, <laughs> I will make your, your dreams come true. And so I'll be on the road doing that every week, and um, I'll do the shame report where I shine the white hot light of shame on the players and coaches and other football figures who distinguish themselves for bad reasons in the uh, in any given week. And I'll keep doing the podcast at least once a week um, on iTunes and um, some other Hooey and Applesauce, no doubt. I'll try, we'll try to keep uh, me and... My main man, Rank, are going to keep trying to jump into the DeLorean to, uh, for the back to the, for the check to the future segment where we jump to the Tuesday, to Tuesday every week to see who all, who won all the previous week's games. And so we're going to keep going with that. And like I say, a bunch of other nonsense. Yes, it's, uh, we're about to get there. It's exciting when, uh, when the season gets going, but it, yeah, it is going to, I'd be jiving if I told you it ain't going to, it's, not going to be very busy it's going to be very busy for us but it'll be uh, it'll be fun no doubt so last thing before we let you go um we've talked about all these cool things today we talked about hockey well we haven't done any hockey and i guess the last thing i want to know is how do you feel like the penguins have gone with their off season they've been kind of quiet there's been some rumors maybe they make a splash with seven uh, there's been some rumors they dip their toes here and there but they haven't done much what do you think about the Penguins' off season and a puck? You worried we're going to have a lockout? I mean, only do it for a minute or two because obviously football took up most of the time here today. But what do you think about the Penguins and kind of the off season so far in puck? Well, people who are connected um, with uh, with teams and in uh, the league, um, and and obviously therefore they would know better than I, all seem to think that uh, the lockout is going to happen, which is too bad. From what's gone down in the offseason, it's not for a lack of trying. Uh, GM Shiro for the Penguins has tried to, you know, he tried to, he made a big run at uh, Zach Parise to get uh, Crosby a winger. That would have been great. Um, I'm glad that Shea Weber of the Predators is staying in Nashville because Philly threw a giant, uh, an insane amount of loot his way, and that would have been bad. In the short term, that the, the Flyers would have been hamstrung down the road by that contract. But in the short term, the Flyers have a have a lot of uh, uh, useful skill up front, so they would have been scary for the next uh, couple or few years. And then Rick Nash to the Rangers makes them obviously a much better team. They're deficient or were deficient last year, as good as they were with guys who could uh, who could score. And Rick Nash all of a sudden is a guy who you know, capable of giving them 50 goals, and they have some legitimate punch up front to go along with uh, Gabrick and Richards and the rest. Um, 
So I feel, as a Penguins fan, I've had to modify where I was. It's a little sad. I've had to modify where I was two years ago or so when I thought, wow, the Penguins really might win four or five Stanley Cups over the next half dozen or eight years. And now, just in their division alone, it's so rugged between the Rangers and the and the Flyers and the Islanders aren't going to be half bad going forward. It's, and the Devils, the, you know, the typical crap out of the Devils, but, you know, hopefully the loss of Parise is going to knock them down a little bit. But, yeah, it's, you know, all of a sudden, what do, what do I think of the Penguins? I They've tried to get better, but um, I'm glad. The one thing I will say is I'm glad that they kept uh, Crosby. And, you know, cynics are, you know, people who are skeptical of his health Whatever he deserves the money, no matter what he he saved the franchise. He did nothing short, along with Lemieux, um, he saved the franchise. They very well could be playing in Kansas City or who knows where if Crosby hadn't come along. So um, I'm glad they keep him. And at the end of the day, if you do get a full strength Crosby, all the additions everybody's made, the Penguins still do have the best offensive potential in the game. I think that I, you know I'd be interested to hear anybody say otherwise and make a case and make it make a compelling case against that if you have Malkin um Crosby the loss of Stahl is terrible but um you know hate to see him go but you do think you know between Jimmy Neal and Sutter is a guy who's gonna who's probably his goal, goal total will jump up so um they are still the most dangerous team offensively and hopefully the, the they have a lot of skill on the blue line it's just very young if that can develop then, uh, then, yeah, I, they, they, I think they have a chance of making a run at the Cup this year. Dave, you mentioned the stall trade, and I know you know I have a brother who plays D1 college hockey, and mm-hmm. um, he was getting, he, when he was going through the process of being recruited, he went on a visit at BC, and he stayed with Chris Kreider, who had a lot of success with the Rangers, but the one guy he told me that he thought was the best player on that, D, that BC team was Dumoulin, the kid that was kind of a throw-in in that stall trade. My brother thinks Dumoulin's going to be a dynamite NHL player, so maybe a couple years down the road, you know, that will lessen the blow of losing Stahl because my brother does think he's going to be more than just a throw-in in that trade. That well, that's uh, promising news, and uh, you know, from your mouth to Lemieux's ears, hopefully uh, that'll that'll pan out for him. But in the meantime, yeah, like I say, it's a little bit of a bummer because if you would ask me in two thousand and nine. Um, you, you know, do you think uh, this Penguins group has more Stanley Cups in them? I would think, well, it's not a matter of if they have more in them. It's a matter of if they're going to win a couple or they're going to win five, you know. but uh, So I've had to modify that a little bit. But, yeah, like I say, they have some nice pieces to trade or to keep and have a dominant blue line for years to come in the way the game goes now with nice puck-moving defensemen who, are re- who have real good wheels. Um they, you know they're 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 very deep on that count, and as long as Malkin and and uh, Crosby are out there, you figure they're you know they're they're not going to struggle to score goals. Dave, thanks so much for doing this today. Again, you can find Dave at Damashuck on Twitter, and he can lead you to all the cool stuff he does over at NFL.com and NFL Network. And hopefully, we're going to hook up and uh, finally see each other in person in Canton in a couple weeks here. Yeah, that'll be fun. In the meantime, fellas. Uh, congratulations on the continued success and rise of uh, your podcast and everything you guys are doing. Thanks, Dave. It's time for a new segment we've created called Five on Fantasy. 
with the first pick, Adrian Peterson, Drew Brees, Steven Jackson, Miles Austin, Leonet Ocho Cinco, TJ Cushmanzada. I once tricked my brother Greg into picking Roy Williams about nine rounds after he had actually been selected. <laughs> I don't care. I'm just trying to win me a fantasy football league. All right. Let's do some fantasy football here. Uh, we've been doing this segment again the last couple weeks, kind of getting ready for fantasy. We've been just kind of easing into it. Last week we kind of talked about some rule things, and today we're going to talk about rankings. Uh, this is kind of how it came up. On our other podcast, the Football Nation podcast, this week we have Adam Rank on the show. And uh, one thing we did with Rank on the show this week is we talked to him about some of his rankings on NFL.com. At NFL.com they have a really great draft kit there. And basically they have five guys who ranked players, and they have your com- the composite ranking, and then they show each person's in- in individual ranking for each player. What Don and I are going to do in Five on Fantasy today is we're going to look at quarterback, running back, and wide receiver and pick out one guy that, based on NFL.com's rankings, we think is either overvalued or undervalued per position. So each of us will take a turn. We'll start. Don will start with quarterback. He'll tell you a guy who he thinks the rankers at NFL.com have either overvalued or undervalued. All right, my pick is Michael Vick. Uh, the rankers at NFL.com have him as their their composite ranking of number 10, with Adam Rank actually having him the lowest at 12. I would probably pick him around my sixth quarterback, behind guys like Rodgers, Brady, Stafford, Breeze are the no-brainers, uh, and probably behind Cam Newton, I guess. But beyond that, I think you're just as... You're rolling the dice just as much with Vic as you are with a guy like Romo, Rivers. I mean, who's Rivers have to throw to? Peyton Manning's hurt. Eli is – he's won two Super Bowls, but he's kind of an inconsistent fantasy player. So I would probably value Vic above most of those guys, closer to where Michael Fabiano has him at number seven. All right. When I was kind of looking at this, I was looking at a few different things. I mean, one, Dave Damashek is crazy if he really believes Drew Brees is number seven. I'm going to guess he thought he was number seven – based on not being sure if he was if right. he was going to sign the tenure and what could happen there. So I'm going to guess when they update them, damn it, Shaq. I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt anyway, say he's going to change that. Yeah, Breeze, uh, by, the Breeze on their composite ranking was five, so that's, that's way too low. I'm going to look at Sam Bradford and say that he's undervalued. I understand why, though. Don't get me wrong. Uh, the rankers have him. Uh, overall, he is the... 19th. 19th quarterback. Some people have him at 20, 25, I think, was the worst I've seen. And I don't know why. Oh, there he is. I lost him temporarily. 25 was the worst. As high as 15. 15 is yep. the best. Here's my thing with Bradford. I'm just not at all ready to give up on him because of one injury-plagued, frustrating season where he was basically surrounded by no one. Y'all, Donnie Avery got hurt again at the beginning of the season. He had I no just, receivers. He's a guy that I hope the other players in my league have ranked around 25 because I would love to have him be my second quarterback. You know, because for one, you can wait a long time to make that pick. Sure. And I just think there's so much upside there. I mean, the guys who are around him, guys like Carson Palmer, there's no upside with a pick like Carson Palmer. I mean, Carson Palmer is completely what Carson Palmer is at this point. You know. I wouldn't want Joe Flacco. I don't know if Matt Flynn's going to start. Are you drafting Sanchez him? Sanchez is going to miss 
maybe share time with Tebow, and that's going to be a mess. I like him more than Fitzpatrick or Castle or Alex Smith. I just think he's a really good, really good option for a second quarterback. Am I drafting him ahead of whom? The two rookies. Yes. Either of them, yeah? Yeah. I I like... Maybe I like Griffin a little bit more because of his ability to score and use his feet. So, uh, you know what? The thing with Griffin is I think someone else is going to take him before I would. Because of Cam Newton last year? Right. So, I think someone is going to pick him ahead of me anyway. I don't plan on having Griffin on many teams. You know what? Sam Bradford might play out to be around 19 just because of that type of what you just said there. Uh, People are going to take Griffin ahead because of the name. They probably will take Luck ahead of him because of the name. If I was to do rankings, I know I would have Bradford around 12 or 13. Yeah. I wish I knew more about Schaub's injury status. I know know that's high. Yeah, I would argue that Schaub is a little low at 14. I looked at that. He had a great season last year before his injury. All right, moving on to the running backs. Again, this is they don't have the date on there. That's the one thing. Maybe I'll throw that out to Dave later on. That they should date their rankings as to when they were updated last. But they have Maurice Jones-Drew at number five. Um, Steve and I both talked about our dislike of Chris Johnson as the automatic number four guy just because he didn't get enough exercise or whatever last year. But that's... Jason Smith has him number one, yeah, Chris Johnson. Crazy. Nuts. But... uh MJD they have at number five, and I'm only saying he's lower because if I were drafting today, if I were doing rankings based on the fact that someone's going to look at them and draft today, boy, I don't know where I would take Jones Drew. I'd be afraid of a holdout. I know he's not expected to report to training camp, and I know I know I would take Forte ahead of him. I know I'd take Ryan Matthews ahead of him, uh, DeMarco Murray, Darren McFadden, maybe maybe even Jamal Charles. I mean, I love MJD. I know he's getting older, but people are probably saying, have probably been making that same claim for years, and every year he comes back and runs phenomenally well. But, boy, he's he just seems like a risk at this point if my draft was today. I think, you know, based on what we've said in this segment so far, obviously Chris Johnson is rated higher than we would rate him, and so is Marshawn Lynch. But if you look at Chris Johnson also, it is kind of skewed by Jason Smith. Nobody else has him higher. Like, five is his height. Right, He's as low as seven on some people's list, and that's probably about more where I would pick him. The obvious one for me, I think, is DeMarco Murray, who's Adam Rank is high on as well, number seven. Uh, that's about where I'd have him, six, seven. Uh, I, I understand why. I wouldn't argue with someone who said, look at this guy had injury problems at Oklahoma. He had injury last year. All, all I would say is his injury last year doesn't concern me because it was just a clean break. The guy just broke his ankle and an ankle that's going to heal. It's not like a ligament where he had to have surgery on it. And I kind of like everyone on the Dallas offense. That's that's not a a good team per se, but it is a good offense. The only guy I'd be a little bit worried about, I guess, would be Des Bryant because of just his off the field stuff. I'd be worried that somewhere along the line he gets suspended or something. But from a talent standpoint, uh, there's a lot of draftable guys in that offense, really at every skill position. And another thing, just kind of as a side note, I know I'm probably higher than most people on Adrian Peterson. The one guy has Adrian Peterson ranked 37th. That's I mean, crazy. he can't possibly believe that. That what he's saying by draft ranking him That's there Jason is, Smith again. By is the he's way. he's not drafting Adrian Peterson because if you look down at their rankings in the 37 area, Toby Gerhardt is 38, and he actually has Toby Gerhardt at 35. So what he's saying is he's drafting Gerhardt before Peterson, and there's just no way I would do that. Just from an upside. Even if he turns out to be right, 
I would never make that pick. Because and there's no way Jason Smith is going to cross off 36 guys on his cheat sheet, be up and go, oh, look, Adrian Peterson's the next guy on my list, and he's available still. Donald Brown. Never going to happen. Well, he actually has Donald Brown 38. Boy, I mean, he must have someone really low ranked higher. But, yeah, there's a lot of, like, Michael Ashore. He has at 36. You're, you're drafting Michael Ashore before Peterson. If Peterson plays, uh, he's a number one He's a top five running back. I think the thing that keeps you from Peterson is you, you feel like you have to draft Gerhardt as well if you pick Peterson and you don't want to make the sacrifice to have to make those two picks when you have to make them. When when do you think he goes in your draft? If you're drafting, when are you grabbing him in a 10-team league? Which guy? Peterson. Yeah, if he's there in the third round, there's no way he's getting any farther. Okay, so you're probably getting him in most of your leagues then. Uh with my third pick, if Adrian Peterson is still there and I have one running back already, okay. I'm definitely picking him. But if you he's not your first running back. Probably not. That'd be tough. Okay, yeah, but thirty seven that's thirty seven rank running back we're talking to. That's right, really not overall. Well, right. right. All right, wide receivers. Uh, I'm gonna steal Adam Rank. We had an interview with him that you can hear over at footballnation.com. Uh, NFL.com fantasy guy and basically an all around guy. He does everything over there. He was really high on Miles Austin, and I've liked Austin as well. I've had him on a bunch of teams in the past somehow or another, but the composite ranking on him is about 18 behind guys like Demarius Thomas, Steve Smith, uh, Victor Cruz, who's kind of a one-year wonder. I like Miles Austin probably around the number 11 spot. Uh, Last year, if you look at I believe it was last year. If not, it was two years ago. He was the number one wide receiver in the league, or one, number two, for like the first four weeks of the season, then had an injury that just messed him up for the rest of the year. Again, I'm high on all Dallas skill position players. It's not a great team, but it is a great offense. you got Romo, Miles Austin, Des Bryant, uh, Jason Witten, DeMarco Murray. It's just, that offense is going to score a ton of points. Wes Welker kind of raised our eyebrows being number two, but then we like clicked on his stats and realized he has at least – 111 catches every year he's been on the Patriots except for 2010. That's insane. So it's kind of tough to argue with his production and right, his I mean, consistency. At, at that, other than the touchdowns, which I guess you would assume would go to Gronkowski more often than not, other than that, you could probably make the argument in a PPR that he's number one. Yeah, and he's even, I mean, he's even done all, he had nine touchdowns last year. Yeah, so that's nothing. It's not bad at all. No, so I mean, but I want to stick up for my boy Colston a little bit. Obviously, I'm a little biased. I named my dog after him. <laughs> uh, but someone has him as low as 25. And again, I just I think that's nuts. I mean, that's basically saying he's your, he's no better than a number three receiver on your team. I I don't think he's like a number one receiver on your team, but I think he's a really good number two. And I just like him better than a few guys ranked ahead of him. I, I th- I trust him a lot more than Victor Cruz in the sense that Victor Cruz might have more upside than Colston, but I also his his downside is is further his floor is a lot lower. Uh, Colston's a guy who I think you know what you're going to get from him. One one thing I think Colston at twenty shows is what a lot of the fantasy experts have been saying this year is just how deep wide receiver is. Um, it's very deep because at twenty. What you're saying basically is you think he'd be higher and he'd be a surefire number two on your team. Yeah, he's a surefire number two, and I like him more than Steve Smith, Victor Cruz, um, 
Demarius Thomas. Demarius Thomas. The like, guys who are getting higher rankings, but I don't think have the track record that Colson has. I like him better than Des Bryant, who's got all kinds of off-the-field issues. I see where other guys have more upside. But I don't know if you need a lot of upside with your number two receiver. With your number two receiver, you almost want steady production. You want to take those upside risks with your number three, your number four receiver, depending on how many you start. But I just think you can't argue with Colston's consistency. And I think you can right away write him down for 80 catches, 1,200 yards, and five touchdowns without having to blink. Looking at this now... Um, I've been a guy in the past that's won a league drafting two two wide receivers in the first two rounds just because it was late in the first round. The running back talent had kind of thinned out. Boy, does it look like you can wait on receivers this year. Uh, Deshaun Jackson is the 26th-ranked receiver, and maybe he's a little bit too much of a home run hitter for people's liking, but still. Uh, Jeremy Macklin, who was a little more consistent, but he was injured a lot last year. He's 23. Brandon Lloyd could have a monster year. In New England, he's 22. There's just a lot of solid, solid. There's a, there's a bunch of guys out there that look like I'd be really happy to have them as my number two. So I can see myself going quarterback earlier than I normally would and maybe picking up like a, a flex running back before I get my second receiver. And I think when people are filling in the rosters in the late rounds, a couple people are going to hit on wide receivers who are going to blow up. I mean, if you look at like, I don't know, there's Just a bunch of rookies. Out, yeah, like John Baldwin, who was a rookie last year in Kansas City. He's number 60. Tons of upside there. You know, like uh, Ruben Randall with the Giants. You're, you, I mean, you can get him any time that you would want. Brandon LaFell, who maybe could turn into the number one in Carolina if Steve Smith hits a wall. You know, uh, Stephen Hill with the Jets. Uh, could be what Plaxico Burris was. I mean, these aren't surefire guys by any means. Randy Moss with San Francisco. Maybe he's got another year in him. Okay, here's another one that stands out to me, again, because of, what's his name, Justin Smith? Jason Smith? Jason Smith's ranking. Um, I was curious to look at the San Diego receivers, namely Robert Meacham, ex-Saint. 27, 27, 18, 19, 44 Jason Smith has him at which averages him out to about 28, even though nobody has him lower than 28 other than Jason Smith. Do you think he's a number two receiver? I don't know. I mean, he's the number one on his team. They're going to be asking him to do way more than the Saints Saints ever asked him to do. That's an interesting wide receiver tandem because a lot of times with a great quarterback, the quarterback can make the receivers. If Phillip Rivers is as good as some people think he is, he's going to win someone a fantasy league because – Someone's going to draft Robert Meacham and Malcolm Floyd and late, and they're going to be really valuable, right? I mean, someone has to get catches there other than Antonio Gates. There's just a lot of young receivers in this league right now. I mean, Greg Little, a guy whose value was destroyed last year by the poor quarterbacking in Cleveland. Well, what if that first-round quarterback they picked hits? Isn't Greg Little going to way outplay 40th overall? Probably. I'm not saying, like... Wow, rush to your draft and make sure you pick Kendall Wright or John Ball or any of the players I mentioned. All I'm saying is that when it gets to later rounds and people are filling out their rosters, somebody's going to draft a guy in the 15th, 16th round that's going to play like a second or third round player. Yeah, that might be true, but I, I, I still think with the depth at receiver, I see myself at a draft 
drafting tons of running backs because of the running back uncertainty and then hoping that one of those guys that you're talking about just goes undrafted and I'll try to get him in free agency because someone's just, going to right i mean it just seems like it seems like there's 30 30 wide receivers that could play like a number 2 predictably and i guess what that means though is your number 2 is going to be a lot lower than somebody that maybe has Guys that play like two number. I don't know. There just looks like a lot of receiver talent out there this year. Isn't Brandon LaFell definitely the number two guy at Carol- in Carolina? I mean, he's he's un unranked by somebody. Yeah. I I just I just could see a guy like that. Like if Steve Smith the first week blows out his hamstring, who is Cam Newton going to throw all these passes to? I mean, according to ourlads.com, Brandon LaFell is the number two wide receiver there. Yeah, there's a, the there's other a, guys there are like Lewis Murphy, but I, I think I, mean, I don't know. Really, what that shows me, like I said, is if anything, I'm going to go with more running backs because there's so much depth at receiver that there's going to be a lot of undrafted guys that'll probably play a solid role on your team if needed. Whereas those running backs, those are a lot harder to come by, and when they hit the waiver wire, the people will, if you have bidding, will bid like crazy for them. So you have to really give up a lot. Whereas receiver. There's gonna be a there's gonna be a ton of them. It seems like it's and it's a quarterback league now. I think that's why we're seeing so many good receivers out there. All right, let's take a break. We'll be right back with Sarah Kwok. Here we go. Our next guest currently lives in New York City and is a graduate of Duke University. At Duke, she worked at the Chronicle, Duke's independent daily newspaper. After college, she was hired by Sports Illustrated as a writer-reporter. Currently, she covers the National Hockey League for SI and SI.com. And tonight, her story on Alex Mayer will be part of the debut episode of Sports Illustrated on the NBC Sports Network. Also, she is talking talking to us very nicely from the airport as she prepares to head to London for the Olympics. A warm sportscaster's welcome to Sarah Kwok. How are you doing today, Sarah? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're excited to have you back. Um, bunch of different stuff I want to kind of go over with you here in the next couple minutes. Let's start with the new show tonight. And it's kind of cool because we love SI and uh, we have usually at least one, if not two, SI writers on just about every week. And I'm excited for the new television program tonight. Verducci, Wertheim, and yourself all have stories on the new show uh, tell us a little bit about your story on the show tonight, and then give us a little bit of background um, kind of about the show and it coming together and what it was like to do something on the television side as opposed to the writing side. I know it's kind of a lot of general stuff, but just kind of take us through the Alex Mayer story and the debut episode and what to expect on Sports Illustrated on the NBC Network. Sure. Um, well, my story is about Alex Meyer. He's an open water swimmer. Um, this is a fairly new event at the Olympics that made its debut in, um, in Beijing in 2008. And basically, it's a 10-kilometer it's swim. Uh, if you think about that, that's six miles of swimming. The world's best take um, just under two hours to finish that. Now, that's just an absolute grueling um, race to, to go through for anyone, uh, let alone, you know, world-class athletes. Anyway, so um, the story is about Alex, who had qualified for the Olympics last year. He was actually the first uh, member of the U.S. swim team before Phelps and before Lochte and all that. Um, And he uh, has a really interesting backstory. Um, 
he was a pool swimmer, but made the switch over to open water around 2009. Um, and he immediately, while he was on the open water circuit, really hit it off with um, uh, another rising star of the open water community, I guess. Um, and his name was Fran Crippen. Um, Fran was a mentor to Alex. They became very, very strong, uh, very, very close friends in a very, very short period of time. Um, and unfortunately, in um, a race in the United Arab Emirates uh, in, in um, October of 2010, um, it was a really hot day, and Alex actually wasn't swimming, but Fran ended up uh, swimming in these really awful conditions, um, and he passed away. He drowned in the water during the swim. So um, the story kind of talks about uh, Alex and how he uses uh, Fran's legacy and how he wants to um, really do this swim and race this race at the Olympic Games, not only for himself, but also for Fran. Um, it was a shared dream that the two of them had. Um, and so it's sort of this really, um, I thought it was a really moving story um, about, you know, uh, friendships and sportsmanship and um, and just exactly what the Olympics is all about. Uh, now, the, the television show uh, came about, um, I think, early this year. Um, and basically, it, it takes stories that have already been written for Sports Illustrated um, or sportsillustrated.com and and then kind of presents it in a um, in a, a slightly different way. It, it uses the the print story, the existing print story, is kind of a model. Um, it's shot very stylistically. It's um, it's not quite like you would see in something like HBO Real Sports or um, 60 Minutes. It's a, it, it will be a little bit different from that. And I think once you watch it, you'll you'll get a sense that it's it's stylized a little bit differently. Um, and so that show, uh, you know, and I, I've been wanting to do this story on Alex for a while, and um, the show really lends itself, uh, or his story really lends itself cinematically to this, um, because he trains in Walden Pond up in Massachusetts, and, and that's just absolutely beautiful. And he and Fran um, took a lot of uh, videos, during their trips together throughout the world, competing at different races. So there was a lot of factors there that made this story pretty, uh, lending itself really well into that medium and, and should make for pretty compelling television, I, I think, I hope. Now, is the, is the, will the show be on monthly? Yeah, it's, it's, um, I think that we are on for five or six episodes, and it'll be once a month um, on NBC Sports Network. Um, and it's not, you know, it's not just, it, it's basically any story. We're, we're not positive exactly which stories we'll end up doing on the television show, but um, it's, it's, I would imagine that it's more of these, you know, um, stories that are human and, and are uh, a little bit more affecting um, than your, you know, general uh, just game story or something like that. Right. It, we're really looking forward to it, and I, I always say that you know Sports Illustrated has such a great deep bench, and I'm looking forward to seeing you know more and more of the writers. And there's a great mix tonight with uh, Verducci and Wertheim and yourself, and uh, 
McCollum has something that you guys are calling the, the point after, right? So looking forward. Yeah, right, right. To, yeah, looking forward to it for sure. Uh, a couple quick hockey things. What did you think of the Rich, the Rick Nash trade? Uh, obviously, you know the easy thing to say is whoever gets the best player in a trade wins a trade, and I'm sure the Rangers in the short term uh, will be the winners of the trade. But what do you think about Columbus and the value that they ended up getting for Nash? I knew that I wasn't going to get off the phone without talking some hockey with you. No way. <laughs> Uh, I think I think New York made out like bandits. Uh, it's it's really a really good trade for them. I mean, Rick Nash is a fantastic uh, hockey player. He's going to add a lot of scoring depth, which you know, when you're talking, you've already got a team with Marion Gabrick, with Brad Richard, Rick Nash to, to that list. I mean, really, it's it's pretty impressive the offensive um, weapons they now have. Um, what they gave up for him, I mean, you could argue that those are good, solid pieces, but nobody in, no, none of those people, Brendan Dubinsky, Armin Yismov, Tim Erickson, they still have a lot of question marks. You know, it's like, you know, they're, they're not, they're not um, franchise players, none of them. You know, there's, there's, they might turn out to be good pickups for Columbus in, in the long run, you know, especially Tim Erickson, he's got a lot of upside. And so um, there is that potential, but to me, I think that this was—I I, honestly—I think that this um, this trade works out for New York very, very well. Um, and uh, I would be—you know—I I think that those players that were traded to Columbus, they could potentially, um, you know, make a name for themselves a little bit more in a smaller market where there isn't, you know, as many big names um, as the Rangers have with. Garrick and Richards and whatnot, but um, it, yeah, I think New York did pretty well. I think that also the the asking price um, uh, at the trade deadline was probably a little bit higher, and so I think that they they made out. Quincy there did pretty well for himself. I can't believe that they were able to pull it off and keep Kreider and Stepan. I mean, I thought I know, yeah, that's 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 absolutely that's that's what I mean. I think you know at the trade deadline, those those were the names that they wanted. Um, Columbus probably wanted, and they wouldn't budge on those. And so then he had to settle with, you know, Brent Dubinsky and Artemi Nismov. I mean, uh, Stepan and, you know, McDonough, those are the guys that, you know, I w- that would, honestly, that would have been a little bit more equal, in my opinion, than what the Rangers had to give up for him. So a couple years, well, 2007, Sabres lost, Drury and Briere and Edmonton threw an offer sheet at Vanek. Sabres were backed into a corner, had to match it. Kind of a similar thing happened to Nashville this year, losing Sutter and the Firestone and offer sheet at Weber. And obviously Nashville had to match it, right? I mean, there's just there's just no choice. Where, where do you? Yeah, th- no. Yeah, where do you think this there's- leaves Nashville now? Well, I mean, yeah, the, they really have no choice. The listen. Uh, Shea Weber is a franchise player. Um, this guy said that he wanted to stay in Nashville, but, you know, they needed to sort of put their money where their mouth was, I guess. And um, there was no way that they, the fan base in Nashville, while maybe a bit smaller than uh, some other markets, they are extremely, extremely dedicated fans over there. And if they had let Shea Weber walk, there would have been some real uprising, I think, um, in Nashville. I mean, there's, he's your captain. He is, you know, 
one of the best defensemen, if not the best defenseman right now in the league, you can't let him walk. Um, I mean, honestly, I thought it was pretty um, pretty gutsy of Paul Holmgren to, to throw that in, uh, throw that offer sheet out there. But, you know, it needed to be done. There was a little bit of feet dragging and just press the situation a little bit. But I thought that that was a good decision. Obviously, it was the only decision that David Boyle could make. Why... Why is that deal even legal as far as if you're Lou Lamorello, do you look back at the Kovalchuk? Are you complaining to the league right now that they made you jump through hoops to get Ilya Kovalchuk signed and this deal gets approved? I mean, how many years at the end of this, like six years or under $3 million or something like that? I think that this, I think that is going to be a, um, an issue of contention in the CBA talks, uh, that will go on this summer. I think that, um, this loophole doesn't make a, a lot of people uh, makes a lot of people really unhappy, especially GMs who don't um, try and move in or take advantage of that loophole. Um, I think that yeah, it, listen, the, the Kovalchuk deal, while optically it looks really similar, that one was really, really, really. Um, insane. Well, it was uh, 17 was, years, so it was a little bit yeah, longer. It, it, it's, it's much longer, and it was, the drop-off was, you know, just unabashedly, um, it was just very transparent what they were trying right, to do there. Right. Like, there wasn't, even, there wasn't even the slightest question what they were trying to do. So I think that that is, that is what makes it a little bit different, but regardless, you're going to see something different. Um, you're going to see some rules put in place uh, in the next CBA, I think, that are going to limit these kinds of things. This is something the league was not happy about when it happened with Kovalchuk, but they they realized that, you know, they, they hadn't forced, they hadn't foreseen this. Um, and now that they have seen it, they're going to stop it. They're definitely going to stop it. So, t- two more quick things. So, now that We've seen Nash traded, and we've seen this offer sheet get offered and now matched. Do you expect the last few pieces to fall into place now as far as Salmon and Doan and things like that? seems like more than any other year, the offseason has taken a little bit more time for all the big pieces to play out. But do you, everyone's been talking about dominoes and dominoes falling. Do you kind of see things picking up a little bit now over the next couple of weeks? Yeah, I mean, this offseason, this free agency has crawled. Um, exactly, at yeah. the pace of a beached whale. It's been really, really slow. But, you know, I, I don't blame them. There's a lot going on this summer, you know, with the to- CBA talks, and there are, there's just a lot of things that a lot of people are thinking about. And um, I think, uh, I, I don't know if we're going to see things, you know, uh, any sort of domino effect. Everybody thought that there was going to be a domino effect once Parisian Suter signed. Right. They signed, and then it was another week. So it's, uh, I, I don't. I get the sense that people are um, taking their time and just not worrying too much about it. Again, especially this summer with all of the um, with all of the uh, the CBA stuff going on, um, I think that people are are trying to you know be measured in what they do before they know exactly what they're getting themselves into um, in the in the coming years. I guess. Last thing, and we'll let you go. I know you're you're getting ready to head to London and cover the Olympics. Just kind of tell us what you're looking forward to down there. What kind of things maybe going into it you're interested in checking out? Are there any 
specific events or any sports? So, I mean, what when you get down there, what are you going to kind of be hoping to see play out, or what kind of stories are you going to be digging for in London? Because I know, you know, with SI having such a deep bench and so many people down there, I'll probably give you a little bit of flexibility in terms of trying to find what you're looking for out there. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I'm I'm really obviously going to really looking forward to to seeing the open water race and, and watching Alex, Alex swim. Um, I I'm also really excited to see um, the triathlon. Actually, as probably one of the events I'm I'm most excited to check out because this is one of the only events, along with the open water swimming race, that's pretty much free to the public. Um, the course, the triathlon course, starts out in Hyde Park. They swim that the serpentine just like. Um, the open water swimmers do, and then they, they do the bike ride all throughout Knightsbridge, and they pass, you know, Buckingham Palace, they pass um, the Arch, the Wellington Arch, the, I mean, it's just really going to be very picturesque, it's going to look great on television, um, and then they run, the running uh, part of it is going to be, again, through Hyde Park, and it's going to be pretty much open to anybody, so if you're in London on August, I think it's like 7th and 5th, um, you should just, you know, stake out a little spot on the course, and you'll be able to see all these uh, Olympians running right in front of you for uh, for nothing other than maybe a little bit of time waiting. Well, I'm sure when you're down there, you'll be keeping us updated on Twitter, and you can follow Sarah on Twitter at SI underscore S-A-R-A-H-K-W-A-K. Thank you so much for doing this at the last minute before you leave the States, and uh, have a good time down there, and we'll talk to you soon, okay? My pleasure. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Right. Getting towards the end here of another podcast, I want to thank all of our guests. Uh, we were just kind of looking at some stuff here for pick four and saying, what a great time for the Olympics right now. You know, it's kind of like only baseball. Olympics are going to take up some time, and then when they finish, we're going to be into August and it'll be football time. Yeah, so, what a great, great uh, transition. Thanks to all our guests for being on the show today. Don't forget, you can find us at www.facebook.com slash the sportscasters. You can also find us on Twitter at sports underscore casters. Email us at sportscasters at gmail.com. Our blogs are sportscasters.blogspot.com, sportscasters.tumblr.com, and our website is www.sports-casters.com. Make sure you check out our other podcast at Football Nation, www.footballnation.com. This week's guest is Adam Rink. Uh, as for last week's pick four, we both went two and two. Uh, we won our baseball games and lost everything else. It's kind of how it turned out. I had the Diamondbacks over the Astros, and my host choice won that. Had Lance Lynn and the Cardinals over the Cubs, and my pitcher won that. Couldn't find the winning golfer once again, third straight major. Ernie Ells won the British Open, not any of my four guys. And R- Semin remained unsigned, didn't sign with the Penguins, as I had hoped. Uh, Don had the Yankees over the Blue Jays, 6 to nothing, and Bailey and the Reds over the Brewers, 3 to 1. He also didn't pick Ernie Els and thought there would be no action with the four big NHL players. And there was actually two things. Yeah, that's right. Rick Nash being traded and Shea Weber having an offer sheet, which he then Good, I'm was glad, matched. Glad to be wrong with that one. All right, so we'll get us started with the game of the week this week. All right, the game of the week this week is the Olympics. Uh, the U.S. men's, whatever they're calling that team now, not the dream team, but this year's edition, uh, against France. That's going to be Sunday, 9.30 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. 
It's on NBC. Whatever time that is there. Uh, yeah. It's live in the Eastern Time Zone right. on NBC at 9.30 a.m. And we were trying to figure out a line for it. Uh, Steve kind of pulled Twitter and came up with anything from like 15 to 40. So we're going to go kind of in the middle and say minus 20, and I will take the U.S. at minus 20. Yeah, the only reason we picked this game, I mean, again, game of the week right now, it's a little weak. Obviously, you could pick any baseball game or whatever, but I thought it'd be cool. It's the first actual game that men's basketball is going to have to play. They've been tested on and off in their exhibition schedule, but I'll lay the 20 points for the fun of it and get behind Team USA over France as well. All right, this isn't something we normally do during pick four, but uh, a tiny bit of breaking news. Uh, Vishante Shenko has signed with the Patriots. Now, that's not a, the biggest name in the world, but it is, tight end it is odd that they have two what you may call superstar tight ends, and then they got another one. I guess he's depth, but interesting. All right, my winning pitcher this week, back to pick four. I'm going to go with Jared Weaver, who's had a real nice year, <clears throat> and I was surprised to find that I haven't used him as one of my pitchers yet. Uh, the Angels are home to the Royals Wednesday at 3.35 Eastern time. I'm going to take uh, Jake PV 7-7 seven seven with a 3.22 ERA for the White Sox over Nick Blackburn, who's 4-5 and five with a 7.46 ERA for the Twins. Games Wednesday, July 25th at 2.10 p.m. It's in Chicago. My host choice this week is about as much of a slam dunk as there can be. I'm going to go back to the Olympics in London and take Brazil over Egypt in their prelim matchup or whatever they call it, round robin, Thursday at 2.45. Men's soccer. Men's soccer. Yes. Yes. I'm going to take a women's soccer game and hope it's another slam dunk. I'm going to take the USA over France. It's the first day of any competition tomorrow, Wednesday. The game's at 12 o'clock Eastern time, and you can watch it on the NBC Sports Network live. And my bullet prediction this week, I was going to go back to the well. About two weeks ago, I had predicted Shane Doan would side with the Sabres. He's still trying to figure out if he wants to stay in Phoenix or not. I was going to say that again, but instead, and this one will be a little bit objective, but I'm going to say that the Sabres make a major trade. Uh, it's a homer We'll know. Homer we'll know pick. if the Sabres make a major trade or not. Right. They haven't this year. I don't consider Roy for Ott a major trade. Right. We'll know. So we'll know. But I think they make some sort of major trade. I'm going to say that the Braves, speaking of trades, will miss out on Ryan Dempster. I think Dempster's going to get his way and find his way to the Dodgers. But instead, they're going to get Zach Greinke. Uh, Greinke's pitching tonight. It's his first time in 13 days or something, making a start. Um, so I'm going to say the Braves will miss out on Dempster, but get Greinke. Sounds good. All right, that's it for this week. Thanks to everyone who appeared on the show. Thanks to everyone who listened. Thanks again to ShermanReport.com and Fangsbike.com dot com for linking to us last week and we will see you next week july 31st last show in july thank you the hip all right <laughs>